Well, thanks uh, to those who led us in prayer, and I appreciate the uh, fact that uh, we set aside a day to honor and to pray for women, and Mother's Day here at Jericho Ridge uh, is not just about those who have uh, kids, but it's about affirming and thanking uh, those women in our lives who have built into the lives uh, of others. And so sometimes uh, in the past, if you've hung around with us for a number of years, we've tried different ways to go about doing this. We've uh, sometimes we've given away a little resource of some kind or a book or uh, we've given away uh, a flower. Um, and sometimes uh, it, as a way of a, a kind of a token of our saying thanks and, and affirming that investment. But sometimes, I don't know, when we kind of think about it, it feels a little bit like a token. I mean, what can you really do with a single carnation anyways? So this Mother's Day, uh, we decided to go in a bit of a different direction with things. And uh, we have, we've put together that month resources, which we normally uh, spend on those things. And we put them into the form of three gifts. And uh, there's two gift cards that have gone uh, to people who are uh, connected with the life of Jericho Ridge. One is to a single mom who's raising her son. And um, that's, been, that's been given this morning as just a way of saying, you know what, as a broader family, we stand with you, we love you, you probably don't have anybody that's going to take you out for lunch today, uh, but on behalf of Jericho Ridge, we want to just give you that opportunity to do that and uh, know that we, we love you and it, it'll give them the ability to do that. Um, the other gift card went to a member of our church family who doesn't have uh, any kids of her own but who has uh, really parented and shaped uh, the, um, in, in many, many significant ways the lives of literally hundreds of young people in a scholastic setting over the past uh, number of years. And she's recently experienced some job transition, and so we wanted to just say thank you, and we wanted to just bless that individual and uh, thank them for the investment that they've made. So we're not going to kind of point it out, and then there's one gift that's going outside the walls of Jericho Ridge as part of our commitment to generous living too. And so, so it's just kind of a different way that we're going about doing it uh, this year and wanted to just let you know that that's part of how we're kind of trying to wrestle with and live out our, our core values of generous living and experimenting with it this way. So that's been done on your behalf as a congregation. So if you don't get a single carnation on the way out, don't worry about it. Uh, there's other people who've received a blessing on, on your behalf. So uh, seeing as it is, is Mother's Day, it's appropriate, I think, what we did this morning to spend time praying for and with uh, our moms because in many ways, particularly for those of you who have kids uh, at home, moms kind of function as a, a bit of a, a primary gatekeeper in some ways and as a tone setter in the home when it comes to those kind of everyday routines uh, of life and priorities. That's not to say that dads aren't involved with those or abdicate those responsibilities in any way or under-involved, but most often the everyday kind of management of those day-to-day kind of pieces falls uh, into, the, into the hands of moms. And so one of the powerful things that happens as a result of that is that moms have the opportunity to really shape the day-to-day fabric of discipleship, of what that looks like in the life uh, of the home. Because it's in those day-to-day-to-day kind of routines, that's where kind of faith gets worked out or doesn't get worked out. Because we can talk all we want on Sundays about how much we love Jesus, but on Mondays through Saturdays, that's kind of where the priorities get put to the test 
in terms of how we spend our grocery money or how we organize our calendar and spend our time and the things that find their way onto that. Our priorities get demonstrated in how we speak to each other or to our children after a Canucks loss. And in the everyday moments of life, that's where kind of faith gets traction. And so it either shows up or it doesn't. And so a lot of those areas moms are very highly involved with. And so it's interesting to me when I talk to and when I listen to individuals talk a little bit about these moments, these everyday moments, and how their priorities play themselves out in family life. Particularly, listening for what do people say versus what do people actually then go about doing in those moments. So, uh, for example, probably the most common refrain I hear in talking to people, and, and you hear this from moms as well, is that their highest aim for their children in life is they would grow up to be well-balanced or well-rounded. Have you heard this, this phrase? And we talk to people, maybe you've, you've kicked it around a little bit, maybe articulated it out loud. And so it leads us, uh, particularly in, in a suburban environment, uh, to articulate it in some very interesting ways. So you see it on, uh, on bumper stickers, things like, or maybe you felt like, mom's taxi service. So you're trying to get a well-balanced uh, life for your children. So we're rushing from soccer it's hard to see some of those icons, to school, to dance class, and then right away try and get in some grocery shopping, and then straight off to hockey, and then squeeze in a dentist appointment, and maybe sometime before school or after church if we can fit it into the weekend. And so some of you moms probably feel like that, thinking, man, I'm in a stage of life where I just do a lot of shuttling back and forth and back and forth, trying to get these kids to be, quote-unquote, well-rounded. Um, some of us are, are driven by uh, the, the cultural idea of what a balanced life looks like. We want to try and, and we love balance. We want to try and aspire towards it in some ways. So we'll use even phrases like work-life balance, although some of you wish you could have a work-life balance without the work, as a bumper sticker that I saw recently. But in this pursuit of balance, particularly uh, in the lives of our kids, the, the thinking goes something like this. If I sprinkle in a little bit of everything and stir it all around, give it, I don't know, 18 years or so, and hope that something good comes out, hope that a well-balanced uh, mix of athletics, arts, classics, a little bit of religion here and there, mix it all together, let it simmer in a pot for 18 years, and hope the heck that when it comes out, it's a surviving, contributing member of society as a whole. But if this is the end game for us, particularly as parents, are producing well-balanced kids who grow up to be well-rounded adults, the question for us should be, is that a biblically defensible idea? What would we see as examples for us in the scriptures that would lean us either in that direction or might the scriptures challenge that in some way, that level of thinking or that idea? Well, we've just started uh, this spring with a series uh, called Ambition, the Good, the Bad, and the Holy. And we're hoping that it, because it's a spring series that the weather will eventually catch up with us in our teaching series. But over the course of May and June, we're going to highlight elements of ambition, or ambition being our desires, those things that we want to really aspire towards. And we're going to isolate a couple aspects, primarily two. We're going to say, are there things that we aspire towards or are ambitious about in our lives that are good, and that we need to pour additional fuel on that fire? 
We need to give ourselves more holy or more dedicated to those things. Or are there things that we are ambitious for or ambitious about that maybe the scriptures would challenge and would say that we should maybe reorient or redeem or rescue that ambition for something higher and something more holy. And so last week we talked a little bit about one of the negative aspects of ambition, about selfish ambition. And so this morning we're going to be looking at ambition and this, this idea, particularly in Western culture and in suburbia, that a balanced living or a balanced life or a well-rounded life is a bit of a myth. And we're going to challenge it and explore together how we might want to consider actually being ambitious for imbalanced or ambitiously imbalanced or perhaps ambitious for non-balance in certain areas of our lives in order to live more fully as devoted followers of Jesus. And to illustrate this, we're going to look at one of the last public teaching opportunities that Jesus had and we'll see what kind of ambition that he affirms and what kind that he sees as inappropriate. So let's pray together as we look into God's word this morning in Mark chapter 12. Well, God, we want to uh, come into this place this morning and submit our lives and ourselves again to the authority of your word. We believe that it's truth for us, that it's our guide for faith and for life and for practice. And so many of us are are at very different places on our spiritual journey. Some of us have questions about what that would look like. Some of us have been maybe on that road for a little while and maybe got a little lost somewhere along the way. And so, God, I pray for wherever we're at on our journey this morning that you would speak to each and every one of us about our own priorities and about us, we've sung already this morning, stirring up a passion for you in our lives and a passion in being ambitious in rightly oriented ways. And so we thank you for your word and thank you for a community that gathers to study it as well. In the name of Jesus, we say thanks. Amen. Well, I didn't, uh, I didn't say this uh, when we were doing the open mic time earlier when Pastor Keith was coming around and talking a little bit about what were things that uh, you appreciated about your mom uh, growing up. But one of the things that, I don't know, sometimes I appreciated it, but sometimes it, it felt like it got a little bit old with my mom, was that she took advantage of something that she would call teachable moments. I hear some of you uh, may have had mothers like that as well. So we would be out doing something, and she would see something transpire, and she would decide she wanted to turn that into a little life lesson for us. So I can remember uh, being out at the card store one time, just in advance of some holiday. It might have been Mother's Day. I don't quite remember. And uh, there were these two people, and they could see one card. The, the rack was practically empty, and there was this one card that was left in it. Men, this may have been you late last night at the mall. So this one card, there are two people, they're converging and rushing for this card, and the one person gets there first, snags it out of the rack. The other person gets there, snags the envelope out of the rack, as if to say, ha-ha, if, you, if I can't have the card, at least you're not going home with the envelope. And they get into this fight and this argument right there in front of, of us in the card store about... I got this card. Well, I've got the envelopes. You can't take them. You know, back and forth and back and forth. So they kind of are going at this all the time. And, and my mom's kind of watching and kind of pulling us back a little bit from this. It didn't get too intense. But what I do remember is then just quietly and gently seeing one of the old ladies that worked at the store kind of come out with her box and lay it down there and open it up and just kind of begin to put back in 
that particular card back in the rack. There were like 50 of them in this box. So here are these grown men, you know, getting ready for this big fight and getting all excited about this. And, and really, there was nothing at all to get excited about. And so my mom pulled us aside and would say something to us like this. Now, kids, do you see how silly it is to fight over a greeting card when there are lots more greeting cards in the back? Or we'd go out uh, for Mother's Day uh, for brunch, and we would, as teens, seriously overeat because we go to a nice restaurant. And so she'd give us in our house what has commonly become known as a mini lecture. And this is where, as a parent particularly, you state the painfully obvious to your children with the hopes that you're making some parenting point. So she would say something like, did you enjoy your brunch? Knowing full well that we were so sick and tired of eggs benedict that we would not touch them again for a full another calendar year until it was Mother's Day brunch again. But my mom had this way of wanting to take everyday little moments and turn them into these teaching opportunities of looking at an observation, a situation, and drawing a lesson out of it for us as kids. And many of you as parents probably do this with excellence. I find I really get stuck in the mini-lecture phase quite a lot, where I'm stating the painfully obvious. But Jesus, uh, in his life and in his ministry on earth, Jesus was a master of this type of a technique, of observing life and then drawing out a teaching point that he wanted to make to his followers. And so here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And this is his last teaching ministry that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark before the events of Easter, which we celebrated a couple weeks ago. And Jesus takes the opportunity to make a very stark contrast between two types of individuals and two very unlikely individuals. His first group of people would be people that would be considered very, very well-balanced and contributing members of culture. And the second, somebody who's on the margins, who exhibits all the marks, though, of radical discipleship and gets commended for it. So uh, I'm going to read from uh, Mark chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 38. And when we get to verse 41, the text will come up on the screens here for you. But starting in verse 38, Jesus is making an observation. And he says, Jesus also taught, beware of these teachers of the religious law. This is a category of people called scribes. Uh, people who were very familiar with the Old Testament and, and then actually made a living uh, as a result of that. For they like to parade around in flowing robes. These were prayer garments that they had. They like to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. It was actually part of the custom uh, in Jesus' day and time that if you were a scribe and you walked through the marketplace, everyone was required to stand up and greet you respectfully. The only exception was made for people who were actively laboring and building something. They could stick at the job that they were at, but everybody else was supposed to kind of give a little bit of heed to the scribes. And so Jesus says, beware. They love to receive this little respectful greeting as they walk through the marketplaces. Verse 39, how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. And then they pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely judged. So Jesus uh, is isolating these scribes 
and making his teaching point about them. And the scribes in, in Jesus' day and time, they were not like some of the other religious leaders like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They were born into more kind of ruling class or upper class families. Scribes could come from any uh, sociopolitical sphere. And a lot of them then uh, were actually started out in the lower classes, schooled themselves and tried to get into good schools and then uh, went to, uh, on to study the law of Moses. And so they actually could make a pretty decent living uh, at this, but you had to earn your way to being a good scribe. And so once you got there, it was a decent gig because you were an expert, a knowledge specialist in the law of Moses, and you got to teach other people, and then you could actually request money for this. And uh, so there were some things that happened right around this time uh, under the pretense of somebody being in a socially well-positioned individual, but uh, they took advantage of this in some ways, which is probably what Jesus is referring to about cheating widows out uh, of their property. And Jesus says, beware about these types of people. They're, They're proud. They love to be first. They love to be known, take the best seats. But behind the scenes, there's something dark going on in their hearts. They may be able to do things publicly, religiously, very, very well, but they certainly aren't practicing what uh, they preach. And right around this time period, there was a high-profile case uh, in the city of Rome where a scribe succeeded in uh, persuading a high-standing woman named Fluvia in Rome, and she made a substantial gift to the temple in Jerusalem, but the scribe actually embezzled all of the money, and the emperor Tiberius found out about this, and this was kind of like front-page news in Rome, and they were outraged at a person who would seem so religiously respectable, would use uh, their position to do such incredible financial harm to a widow. And so Jesus is very, very harsh on the external optics, particularly of people who use religion to do things like that, but whose everyday lives don't really instantiate their piety. They talk the talk, but they don't really walk the walk. And so you get that in your mind. This is what Jesus has been teaching about And then in verse 41, the scene shifts. And the scene shifts actually to one of these widows. Jesus is still in the temple. He's observing the crowds. But he observes a teachable moment that's in very, very stark contrast to the lesson which he just gave his disciples and the warning. So look with me at Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Jesus calls his disciples to him. And he sat down near the collection box in the temple. And he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in very large amounts. And then a poor widow came. And she dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, as poor as she is, has given everything that she had to live on. So after Jesus is taught about the scribes, now we have this widow who's putting in literally her two cents. She puts in two of the smallest coins in circulation In that day, in our day and age, except if you live in Europe or if you're in New Zealand, uh, we think in terms of the penny, probably. 
And the temple, obviously, is a center of Jewish religious observance. And as such, there's a financial element to things. So those who worked in the temple drew their living from the collection of offerings in the temple. And this was probably where they put in volitional or free will offerings. And some of this got a little bit corrupted as well. And so in Jesus' day and time, one of the things that often happened was that those who worked for the temple would make a large kind of public declaration. So they would kind of, as you would come to make your free will offering, they would kind of check it out and make sure that this was legit, make sure that you were, you know, a person of means. And then as you put it in, they would make an announcement and say, attention please, uh, everyone, Matthew of Galilee has just made a very generous contribution to the temple fund here. He's put in 2,000 denarii. This is big deal. Thank you, Mr. Matthew, for your generosity. And so you can see how rich people who love the applause of others would just love this kind of deal. So they would love to put in large amounts because it would, it would get them really kind of bonus points in their mind. And they thought, well, in the temple, this was, a, this was a big deal. So just like the scribes loved. So there's all these announcements probably happening at this time. And then along comes the widow and she drops in literally two pennies. I don't think it even probably got announced. It was just too insignificant of a gift for them to consider in any way. Didn't make the six o'clock news. Probably didn't even get a nod from any of the religious leaders or people. And the contrast that Mark is setting up in his narrative is palpable. We're supposed to feel it and see Jesus has just been teaching about these people that use and abuse their wealth in this way and privileged status. And then along comes this widow who are the very people whom they've been uh, taking property from. And his description of the scene accentuates really the poverty and the insignificance of the widow's gifts. Here's the scribes. They're wealthy. They're ostentatious. They love the public element of things. The crowds in the temple. There's riches there. There's their extravagant gifts. And then this poor widow comes along with her two small coins. And nobody really notices her input. Nobody except for Jesus. And so Jesus uses this as a teaching moment for his followers, including us. Jesus calls his disciples over to him and says, hey, let's just tune out the noise and the distractions that's going on around here for a few minutes. Let's, I want to I just point something out to you. I want you to tune out the public proclamations of who's looking well-adjusted as a member of society by the way that they look or by their economic status. And Jesus says, I want you to understand something about what just happened. In purely financial terms, the value of her offering, completely negligible. But in the divine exchange rate, things look different. Everything about this woman has been described as less. But to Jesus, the value of her gift is not in the amount given, but rather in the cost to her as a giver. Jesus says she's given everything that she has. Or literally, she has given all that she has to live on. She has laid down, as it were, her own life, which is a picture of what Jesus is going to do in the coming 
chapters in Mark's gospel. Now back to our question of balance as the capstone of suburban parenting and life. If you knew somebody who was down to, let's say, pick an amount, $100, $600, whatever it would be, to live on this month, and they told you, you know what, I'm thinking of giving away, I have $100 left to give me through the month, I'm thinking of giving away $50 to charity. You'd probably say to them, are you kidding? Give your head a shake, friend. Like, don't, you, you need to be the object of the charity. Don't go finding a charity to give to. That's ridiculous. They told you, well, I've, you know, I've got 600 bucks this, this month. I'm going to try and put a roof over my head and eat and trying to get around. But, you know, I'm actually planning on giving $500 of it away to feed uh, starving children in Africa. And you'd say, what? <laughs> what are you doing? That's ridiculous. You're not going to have enough money to live on. That's not a plan. And sometimes biblical scholars, when they look at this text in Mark chapter 12, get carried away trying to figure out, well, what's the exact contemporary equivalent of the amount that the widow gave? Was it two pennies? It was literally two sixty-fourths of a day's wages for a laborer. So they try and figure out what's a day's wages for a laborer today. And so is one thirty-second of that, is that equal to a dollar? Is that a dime? Is it $10? Like, what is that? But that, I think, misses the point completely of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here. The thing that stood out to me this week as I looked at this passage was the fact that the simple reality that the widow actually had two coins to put in. She had options. Balanced living would suggest that in her socioeconomic state, at very, very maximum, she should probably, and this would be reckless, but she, if she's got two coins, at least only put one coin in and keep the other one to live off of for the rest of the month. I mean, if you want to be crazy generous, just toss one into the temple treasury. After all, none of the rich people are giving 50% of what they had to live on. Jesus says they were giving of a tiny part of their surplus. So, I mean, even one coin would have been radical generosity on her part. And balanced living would suggest that this lady is crazy. She has two small coins. But what a person gets paid for a day of work. And she actively and purposefully and willfully chooses radical faith. And Jesus doesn't rush over and say, hey, listen, I noticed that. Um, that's amazing. Uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to provide for you from a benevolence fund that the temple's got set up here for you. you know, go and pe- There's no indication as to what transpired. All Jesus commends her for is the radical act of obedience and faith. Because Jesus holds up a different lens than our culture holds up when it comes to the question of following him in discipleship. Oftentimes, things that our culture values as noble and worthy pursuits, things that really impress others if we get them right, Jesus kind of looks at those and says, meh. You want to see something impressive? Look at this woman's radical discipleship. Look at this woman's radical obedience. And many 
people among us actually possess this level of ambitious imbalance. And I'm going to pick on a couple of them because, first of all, I want you to pray for them. Think about the level of ambitious imbalance that some of our global workers that we're connected with here at Jericho Ridge possess in their lives. Think about somebody like Andrew and Colleen. Have twins, just young girls. Balanced living, suburban style, would say, you know, this would be a good time to kind of take your foot off the pedal of global mission for a little bit. Let them grow up in a good, safe environment, um, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that you can serve and help the church globally uh, through the gifts that God has called you to here. Uh, there's lots of things that you could do. What's their response? God has called us to Nepal. God's called us to a place of work and service where there is not anything that closely resembles the comforts of modern suburban life. And just because we have two young daughters under the age of one doesn't mean that we want to put that call on hold. We want to pursue ambitious imbalance. And yeah, other people probably look in on that and go, you guys are crazy. What in the world are you doing dragging these young girls all the way across the world? You know, in planes that aren't properly adjusted for oxygen when they fly up over the mountains in Nepal. But you know what? They're ambitiously imbalanced because they know what it is that God's put in their life as a call, and they pursue that. Pick on, I'm going to pick on Howard and Kara. Howard and Kara have just been in process with MB Mission and have been at something called Spring Adventure and have been green-lighted to kind of continue in that process with MB Mission and think about long-term global work and service and what that might mean and the implications of them. So Howard is a teacher. They're expecting their second in the end of June. Like most people in that situation are thinking, okay, well, this is a good time to kind of be thinking, build a little nest egg, let's buy a house, second child's coming, let's figure out the spacing dynamics as to how we're going to make sure. If I'm Howard, I'm thinking maybe I should pursue some kind of department head position so that we can get a little bit more financial resource. Like there's lots of kind of thoughts that go through your head. What are they thinking? They're thinking, nope. This is a good time for global mission. This is a great opportunity that God has called us to, and we want to be faithful in living that out. Suburban values would kind of look at that and go, that's crazy. That's radical. That's kind of, are you sure you want to be about doing that kind of stuff? It's the same lesson that Jesus is trying to draw out here for us from the widow and from the gifts that she gives in there. A lot of times this relates, you know, people teach in this and use it to talk about the financial reality of balance and the financial you know, gifts that we're given. And there's definitely lessons in there for us in that. There's also lessons in just her heart, in the way in which she approaches it. She doesn't do the 50% thing. I got two coins, I'm going to put in 50% to Jesus and I'll keep the rest back for me just because you know, I want a bit, of a bit of a kind of a buffer zone in my life to see if that's you know, a bit of a way that I can organize and orient myself for the future. And the intriguing thing to me is that when it comes to imbalance, discipleship, faithful discipleship, almost always looks like imbalance or non-balance to those steeped in Western suburban cultural values. 
Discipleship almost always looks that way to people, looking on it from the outside, looking in. People look at you and say, why in the world do you give money away to stuff? That's just stupid. You should keep that for yourself. What if something happens to you? People say, why in the world would you give of your time to other organizations? And go down and serve at the Gateway of Hope. Like, shouldn't you probably be spending that time with your family? Why in the world would you spend a week of your time in Guatemala? Shouldn't you be planning more family vacations and spending time in that way? Discipleship almost always looks like imbalance to those who are steeped in Western suburban cultural values. And so part of the challenge to me and to us personally and as a community of faith as well is this question. What elements of your life might look imbalanced to others? but would be commended by Jesus? What aspects of your life might look like imbalance to others, but would receive commendation by Jesus? If you can't think of any, that's a problem. Because faithful discipleship will almost always call us in a particular place like here in North America to swim against the tide and the current of some things that our culture holds up as the most esteemed prize, like balance or well-roundedness. And I'm not saying that we should forsake all of those things. And what I am asking us to examine, though, is that question of if someone looked at your life would they call any part of it radical for the sake of the gospel? Or would they say, I don't know, they seem pretty normal to me. Part of my heart and part of our prayer for us as a community is that we would create a countercultural revolution of ambitious imbalance here in Jericho Ridge that it would become normal to be abnormal. I was going to buy all of the mom's shirts with something like that, but Pastor Keith wisely put a stop to it because he said that it would probably mom's, A, wouldn't wear a shirt that says I'm weird or abnormal or something like that. Uh, but you know, also the budget was a bit of a problem on that regard. Uh, but the idea implicit in that is that we desire and that we hope and that we pray that my life our family life, the life of Jericho Ridge as a community reflects a level of imbalance of those on the outside looking in going, that, that church is crazy. Why would they give away 10% of the money that they have to things that don't impact or benefit them at all? It's a little bit ridiculous. Why don't they just put it in some kind of deposit fund for themselves in case things should go awry at some point? There's all kinds of examples that you might think of. But the question is, what element of your life might look like imbalance to others, but would receive commendation by Jesus if he was looking as he was at the life and the practice of that widow? We're going to conclude our time together in prayer this morning. I want to pray for you that and pray for myself that God would call this out
in our lives as individuals and as a community. And so if you want to spend a few moments uh, talking with anybody about something that you've heard, we would invite you to do that. And we'll also be spending time praying for Tanya over there, just behind uh, the, the curtaining there, because it's ambitiously imbalanced to give up a nice summer of teaching here in the Lower Mainland to go to a place like DPRK and to be involved in changing culture there. And so there's all kinds of examples of this in mission. But I wonder if there's any examples in your life and in practice. Let's pray together. God, we say thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather. Thank you for the way in which your word challenges us about areas that we might think of as just very balanced and very normative. But you call us to something deeper and to something different. And so, God, I pray that as a community of faith that we would rise to that challenge and that we would ask you to search our hearts and to know our thoughts and our lives and the way in which we organize our lives, our time, our finances, our conversations and relationships. And in every way, Jesus, we would be submitted to you and ask that you would call us to levels of ambitious imbalance that we have not known before. For the sake of and the declaration of your name and your honor and glory, both here in our community and around the world. We pray and say, amen.